Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm your host, Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are talking about the novella Hour of Trust, which was originally published in Bad Moon Rising in 1973. But we read it in the story collection, The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories and Other Stories. As I said, this is a novella. It's the the first, actually, of five of them that we're doing in this run of stories before we get to peace. So we are going to split our coverage across three episodes. Hour of Trust does not have a lot of section breaks to choose from, so we're going to do one unusually short-ish recap episode tonight, covering only about a quarter of the story, and that section break is on 145, or if you happen to be reading it out of the best of Gene Wolfe, then it's on page 94, and next episode, we'll recap the rest of the story, which is going to be a pretty big chunk, and then we'll have a third episode for a discussion, and there is going to be a lot to talk about with this one. There really is an awful lot to talk about in the story. This this is an exceptionally rich wolf story, and one that did not puzzle me on any level that it was in the best of Gene Wolfe. It really is another really quintessentially wolfy story, though in a very different way than West Wind, which we just covered was. There's some real bitterness and cynicism in this story, I think, and that's something we'll want to talk about two episodes from now when we get to the discussion. Uh, but I... I really loved this story for all the things that Wolf is dealing with. And and you kind of get the sense from reading the author's note in The Best Of that he was desperate to write a story. And I think we're seeing some of the rawness of Wolf come through here. So a lot to talk about, a lot to explore, and it is a huge story. But we also have a Patreon update that we want to share. Yeah, we have such awesome support from some truly, truly generous listeners. And so as we're recording this, we are now a little more than halfway to our goal of being able to release this show every week. And this is very exciting because we've taken a look at how long it's going to take us to get to the book of the new sun. This is something we had to do because of all of these novellas we're doing in this batch of stories. And right now we are on pace to start the book of the new sun late in 2022. So that's going to be three years from now. But if we reach that Patreon goal, then we can cut that time in half. So we could be there just over a year from now, which would be phenomenal. If you want to see us get to the Book of the New Sun a little bit quicker than the pace we're moving now, just support us on Patreon. You can support us for as little as $2 a month. We have a lot of great benefits to being a Patreon supporter. Tons of bonus episodes where we talk about other stories and TV shows apart from Gene Wolfe and access to other Patreon bonus episodes that include Valerie and I talking, Valerie's Glenn's co-host on Lower Decks, and Glenn and Valerie talking about other episodes of Star Trek. So there's a lot of great stuff. I really encourage you to check it out. Just take a peek at our Patreon page. It's under Clay Temple Media. And uh, give it a look. And if you like what you see there, please support us. Well, Glenn, we have a lot of work to do tonight. So let's just get into it. Hour of Trust begins with an epigram. And really, I have to say, it's one of the craziest epigrams I've ever encountered. It's not a pithy line or two that clues us into the theme or sets up some kind of joke. It's a block quote of a dizzyingly boring bit of writing that takes up an entire page before we even get to Wolf's story. And this epigram is from Proust. And of course, we know that Wolf was reading Proust during this time. That's how we have the fifth head of Cerberus. And I'm just going to read the whole thing. And then, Brandon, since you are our resident Proustian, maybe you can tell us what you think we as readers are supposed to do with this passage at the start of the story. So here's the Proust. You read, let us say, that this or that core has tried. But before we go any further, the serial number of the core, its order of battle, are not without their significance. 
If it is not the first time that the operation has been attempted, and if for the same operation we find a different core being brought up, it is perhaps a sign that the previous core have been wiped out or have suffered heavy casualties in the said operation, that they are no longer in a fit state to carry it through successfully. Next, we must ask ourselves, what was this core which is now out of action? If it was composed of shock troops held in reserve for big attacks, a fresh core of inferior quality will have little chance of succeeding where the first has failed. Furthermore, if we are not at the start of a campaign, this fresh core may itself be a composite formation of odds and ends withdrawn from other core, which throws a light on the strength of the forces the belligerent still has at his disposal and the proximity of the moment when his forces shall be definitely inferior to the enemy's which gives to the operation on which this core is about to engage a different meaning, because if it is no longer in a condition to make good its losses, its successes even will only help mathematically to bring it nearer to its ultimate destruction. All right, Brandon, we have this massive epigram here that tells us how to derive meaning from the serial number of a military unit, and we get this before we even have a single word yet from Wolf himself. So why? What does Wolf want us to do with this crazy epigram? Well, this scene, this conversation takes place at dinner between the narrator and a friend of the narrator's, Robert St. Lou, who is sort of the epitome of a dandy character in this story. Uh, For people who are unaware, Remembrance of Things Past or In Search of Lost Time is caught up a lot in both the regular politics and the sexual politics and all the sorts of goings on in uh, late 19th century and early 20th century France. This character, Robert St. Lou, has befriended the narrator in the third book, Germantes Way, and he is a student of military strategy at this school, at a a cavalry school. St. Lou is also a supporter of Captain Dreyfus, who was the central figure of the Dreyfus Affair, though his allegiances to this character, Dreyfus, uh, change throughout the story. And this Dreyfus Affair was a huge issue in France. And Glenn, you found this bit of conversation uh, really boring, but this whole conversation is actually fantastic. This whole dinner scene is really great because these dandies and aristocrats are only engaged in military strategy in the abstract sense and are really divorced from the real impacts of what these things mean. And Proust, through the time it takes for him to write this story, is writing up to the point of World War I beginning. So we know that this sort of talk is really tested by the time we get to the end of these novels. So I think the main things we're to take from it is this sort of abstract strategizing on the part of people who are in power, who have the right answers, but have no experience in the actual work they're talking about. In this sense, it's soldiering. And we see these themes throughout this whole story. And there's a chance that the character in this story, Treadgold, is kind of a model figure of this type of person who is gaining their status from the purely abstract world of strategy and know-how and business acumen, but doesn't really understand or care about the impact of their actions on the general public. So all of these things are, are going on here, and I recommend everybody, if they haven't read Proust yet, uh, just give it a shot. It's pretty great. Well, that really opens this up for me, this image of rich dilettantes doing a bit of armchair generaling and perhaps thinking of themselves more like soldiers than, in fact, they actually are or perhaps are even capable of being. That is, in fact, going to be a real central thing that this this story is about. So let's finally get to Wolf's story here. We open with a description of an old hotel. It's made of stone, but its interior is plaster and tile. 
They're both dull and muted shades of blue and red. There are also aging candelabras, and this detail serves to introduce us to our first character, uh, though not yet our protagonist. And this character is Cleo Morris, a secretary who later this evening is going to light these candles. And in describing this, Wolf does a lot of world building. So we learn that Cleo's boss is a man named Lowell Lewis, and that one of the things that makes Cleo such a great secretary is that she looks good in short skirts. And this is an important indication about what type of man Lowell Lewis is, and really what type of men the the rest of the characters we meet are. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Cleo here is an important figure in the story, maybe on on a symbolic level. One, she represents the way women are treated in the workforce in this kind of new corporatist America that we're going to learn about really soon. Second of all, Wolf explicitly calls out the reference he's making here by naming this character Cleo, who is the Greek muse of history. That may be worth digging into as well. And we're also getting some significant foreshadowing in the first paragraph of this story where we're introduced to Cleo that may really impact the meaning of this whole story or shine some light on some real thorny questions about the end of the story. But we have quite a ways to get there before we get to the end. You mentioned the flowers in the story and the colors of blue and red. The flowers mentioned here are cineraria and Sometimes they're a symbol of protection. These flowers grow only in and around the Mediterranean. But I think in this story here, Wolf has chosen these flowers not for their symbolic power, but to clue us into the location and to give us this extra sense of blue on blue, this sort of ghostly haze that this hotel gives off. It's really, really incredible writing. And in the same way, I'm not sure that Cleo here is some sort of muse in some sense in this story. And that's because I think Wolf has called out his reference, which he never does, I think, if there's a deeper meaning there. Yeah, he uses a dad joke about the fact of her name here. But I think we can safely assume that this is significant in the story, that we should be thinking about history, which is to say we should be thinking about change over time, and maybe even about moments when people are making significant choices about what that change will be like, because it's going to turn out that we are in one of those moments in this story. And Wolf also employs a technique here in which he gives us a plot point that won't come about for several pages, but that builds up the world for us. And it's that later this evening, Forrest Cougar will be pinned down in Dearborn, Michigan. And this will occasion the lighting of the candles by Cleo Morris, because the news of the military setback will require something to cheer up the people who are receiving that news. So here is the first indication after the epigram that this is a war story. And of course, we see that although we're talking about Michigan, this is not quite our world. It's not the world that we live in. It must be at some point in the the future because we don't name units like Force Cougar and we don't fight wars in Michigan. So right away we get the speculativeness of the setting dropped onto us. And Wolf really loves this hotel that he has conjured up, or possibly it's a real place that he's actually visited. And he continues to describe the hotel to us. And there there are two things here that really matter. The first is that it is opulent. This is a fancy hotel for wealthy tourists. And the other thing that matters is that it is in Portugal. And this certainly struck me as odd. In fact, it confused me on my first read, because we've just been told that the action of the story is going to take place in Michigan. It's really important that Wolf is pointing out to us explicitly 
I think it took me probably till my second read to find the explicit references to Portugal here. But we have a, a picture on the wall of the Viana de Castello, and then he makes a reference to the Portuguese sky. So Wolf never says this hotel's in Portugal. It's just these adjectives or references to these places that are easy to miss on a first read, uh, the same way you would never know by the first paragraph that it's full of foreshadowing on a first read. But the location being Portugal of the of the folks through whose eyes we'll see the story unfold are really far from the main action of the story. And that is very important. There will be action in this story as well. There is a plot, but it's important for the themes that these people are far, far from the action, that their interests don't lie solely in the lives and deaths of the people engaging in this military action. And I also like the way that this introduction is written. It's kind of told in a in sort of an aloof hindsight. It has like a Rod Serling Twilight Zone sort of opening, like imagine yourself in a hotel in <laughs> Portugal. This night, this will happen. Um, and we're being brought into the story by being told that events are about to happen. And we're told some of what those events will be, though we have no context or no way of understanding them. I think it's a, it's a great way to open a story, even though uh, the description of the hotel might be two paragraphs too long. This technique that you're referring to here, Brandon, this is because of the muse of history. It's because we are getting this story narrated to us by someone who already knows all the events as they have unfolded. This is someone in the future who is telling us this story about this important moment. The narrator is not a heavy presence in the story, and we will never really meet that person. Person, though we might in the discussion speculate about that a little bit. But I think that's what Wolf is doing here when he invokes the muse and is using you know, his verb tenses in this way to clue us into the fact that we're meant to be thinking historically about what is happening here. But we aren't quite ready to get to the plot yet. We should actually meet some of our principal characters before we do that. And these are all American businessmen from United Services Corporation. And they occupy a suite of rooms at this Portuguese hotel. And we've already met Lowell Lewis and his secretary, Cleo Morris. But now we get introduced to Donovan and Peters. Donovan is short, fat, and bald. He's the European sales manager for United Services, and he has lived in Europe for eight years. And in giving us this information, Wolf also tells us that Donovan is not worried if U.S. goes down because he's got great European connections and credentials. This detail tells us that there is something serious at stake here. And, and, you know, if the indication of military violence in Michigan didn't already clue us into that. So Wolf is, is ramping up the stakes here. But Donovan is not particularly important to the story. Peters is our real point of view character for most of this story. And Peters is Lewis's executive assistant. And it's Peters who is responsible for managing the piece of technology that makes this story possible. And this is something called the VidLink. It is a wall-sized TV screen, just like we had in West Wind. So clearly this was something that was on Wolf's mind in the early 1970s. And importantly, it is digital rather than analog. And Wolf, the engineer here, gives us some details about a process called infinite scanning, which I don't know, might be an important euphemism. But essentially, this is just a device that Peters can use to Skype with people and see video back in America, in Michigan, to be precise. This must have been a really cool, really revolutionary 50 years ago, but we just use this every day now. Yeah, it's video conferencing is what's right. happening here. That's it. Um, but it's a crucial element to the story. This this VidLink is one of the core elements of the story. And because of the way Wolf uses it here in Hour of Trust, it gives the story a real sense of relevance. I mean, there's nothing unusual about the way this VidLink is being used. And we'll even get into some weird precursors to cyberpunk, I think, before we get to the end of the story. 
I do want to point out something we learned in Donovan's introduction, which you also pointed out, Glenn, which is us learning about the United Services and how it is given the abbreviation U.S. and how this kind of loss of the United States owning that abbreviation when people refer to the U.S. now in this world, they're referring to United Services, the corporation. And, you know, the United States losing that nickname really does indicate that something has happened where the the states have given themselves over to corporations and corporate power. And it clues us into the fact that the United States is not really any longer run by the government. And that is perhaps a, a source of some of the troubles that we're seeing from afar in Portugal as we look at the United States. We also learn in this section that the year is not right around 1994. And I want to point this out because I think Wolf is really considering some long-term impacts of changes that are taking place with business and how corporations define themselves and what's going on in business management theory in the 1970s. And if that doesn't excite you, I don't know what will, but we're going to get into all of that in the discussion. <laughs> yeah, right. So let, let's get into the, the what the setup for this story is. So Lowell Lewis and these other businessmen from United Services Corporation are throwing a party tonight for their European business associates. And we are told specifically that two important people will be present, though we never get their names. One is a German industrialist who hasn't been outside of Germany since 1944. This is the detail that lets us know that it's around 1990 or so, uh, which is to say 20 years in the future from the perspective of the story that Wolf is writing. But it's also significant that this man has not left Germany since the Second World War. And since we know he was not in Germany in 1944, we can almost certainly assume that he was a Nazi soldier at some point. And I think that's extremely important. The other European businessman is an Italian industrialist who loves to collect art. And once again, right, it has to be significant that the two most important people at this party are from America's enemies of the Second World War, and that one of them explicitly was a soldier on the other side of that war. I think we're going to learn that that both of them were uh, in this story. And we will talk about in our discussion episode what is happening with Wolf's approach to nationalism in this story, because this is not the last time we'll see people being identified by their nationalities or race. And we even get some comments a little bit later on about this sort of thing. It's it's definitely a crucial part, one of you know, a dozen crucial elements in this story. Well, we also learned here that this Italian industrialist, unlike the German industrialist, he, in fact, travels a lot. And Donovan even says that this guy spends more time in the States than he gets to. But Peters corrects Donovan here and says, not anymore, right? So this is the further indication that something is not right in America. Uh, but also, it's a, a note, it's a pretty clear indication that this trouble is recent, now, the story really gets underway here when Peters gets a video call from someone named Treadgold. Treadgold is English, but he also lives here in Portugal, where he is the manager of a modeling agency. And this modeling agency is supplying some beautiful women to attend the party tonight so that the businessmen will enjoy themselves. And it is clear from the context that modeling agency here means escort service. And so in short, right, Peters is, as the executive assistant, is making sure that there will be high-priced prostitutes at this party, which really adds to the sense that these businessmen are maybe not good people. They're definitely not good people on any level. Treadgold himself is a kind of slimy and shady figure that really only deals in vice and uses all of these chaotic business organizations to his advantage. He's just a profiteer. 
And we also learn here that that Peters, apart from being an executive assistant, is kind of low on the totem pole. And uh, we get that sense because he's imitating Donovan, who just kind of barked orders at him just a moment ago. And Peters adapts this characteristic to talk to Treadgold. And it gives us a sense that Peters is being initiated into this mode of interaction with other people in order to get business done. And also, you know, with some some more characterization of Peters here that he's still just learning the ropes of this business thing. We're going to figure out he has an elite education here in a moment, but he's here really as a, as an amateur. Yeah, we get to learn quite a bit about Peters in this moment because Wolf has Peters and Treadgold chat a little bit. It's, it's just one of the characteristics of Treadgold that he really likes talking to people. This probably makes him a good manager of prostitutes, I suppose. With his narrative technique here, this plot device lets Wolf give us quite a bit of information and really set up the themes of the story. So it turns out that both Peters and Treadgold are 24, and they are just at the start of their careers, both of them with big corporations, because Treadgold's brothel, or modeling agency if we want to call it that, is owned by a British newspaper, which in turn is owned by an American company that makes music tapes. And Peters has just finished a degree at the Harvard Business School. It's that elite education you mentioned, Brandon. Well, Treadgold's pedigree is less refined. He says that he went to a red brick university in England, which is to say he went to just a state school. Treadgold wanted to be a journalist, but the company that owns the newspaper wound up sending him here to manage this brothel instead. Uh, and this brothel was running at a financial loss before Treadgold arrived. And we learned that his pay was very low in this job. But fortunately for him, the company decided to stop paying managers a salary and instead to pay them in profit sharing, which gave Treadgold the incentive to turn the business around to to be a really productive pimp, essentially. And he's very, very proud of this. Yeah, one thing we we see in this section, uh, which I'll have a, a little bit more to say about when we get deeper into their conversation, is the first mention of this the contingency called the Harrys, which we'll learn more about as the story goes on. Basically, they're the revolutionary group in America that is fighting this corporate power. We also get a deeper understanding of the power that these international conglomerates really have. They seem to run everything. They have an enormous amount of power due to the ability of a parent company to hide their influence by running these smaller other companies. And it's, you know, really a problem that these that these companies have this much power and can hide their illicit behavior or the the marketing power of these brands can stay strong because they're not specifically engaged in the activities of peddling vice. Rather, they keep all the profits in-house, but uh, it's not them managing the company. So it's just this kind of distance, again, between the face of a company and its real activities, which we'll continue to see brought up in this story. And Treadgold's a real fascinating character because he seems to be really the only man at this party who has a real clear sense of what the world is actually like. I did want to say one thing, Brandon, about the, the detail that you brought up about the Harrys. We do get that here. And you said that they're a revolutionary group who is reacting to this corporate world, which is true. We are going to find that out, but we don't know that here. We don't find that out for like 20 more pages. So at this moment, you know, right, we're in a science fiction story. I'm wondering if Harrys is space aliens or orcs who have come up from the the ground, you know, Morlocks or something like that. And Wolf really takes a long time to tease that out for us, which is a lot of the fun in this story. But Peters is really shocked to learn that the music company that owns this brothel, this modeling agency, didn't care that that had been losing money for them. Because, you know, he just 
finished business school. And the principal thing that he learned there is that businesses are about making money. But Treadgold finds this hilarious because in his experience, that is hardly ever actually true. He points out that people who are really good at making money for large corporations are almost always removed from the job they are doing and put into some position where they can't actually do something useful or profitable. Sounds a lot like the army, as I recall. And he goes on and says, besides, what are these big corporations going to do with more profits than they already have? And this is going to come back later when we run into Treadgold at the party. But for now, this conversation comes to an end because Lewis needs to talk to someone on the the video phone. So we're going to get another conversation here in just a minute. I just want to point out one brief reference that Treadgold makes here to Dick Whittington uh, in the in this story. I think this is referring to a kind of British folk hero and also real person uh, from the 15th century, a mayor of London and a, and a merchant who in the folklore sold his cat to the Moors for a fortune because they had a rat infested country. And that's how he came to power. And the reference here is is really about the rags to riches story, probably more than anything else. That uh, Tread Gold, who makes the reference, knows he's going to be poor for a bit, but he's going to make himself useful. He's going to be a good merchant doing whatever it takes to make money. And he doesn't really know what kind of fortune is going to come from these experiences, but he expects there to be a windfall, probably because it sounds like he's really good at peddling vice and exploiting business relationships. Another level of this conversation between Treadgold and Peters is that even though Treadgold is in the business of supplying these models and prostitutes to corporate events and parties, he and Peters are talking about this purely in terms of net gains and and losses, in terms of profits. And they're not talking at all about what the work is really about, about what they're making or manufacturing or asking people to do in order to generate these profits. There's a real divorce from the social impact of their work and the profits their work could generate. And this is a really, really crucial theme to the story. You know, Peters here, as you pointed out, Glenn, repeats that the object of business management is to maximize the value of the stock. And this is a this is kind of a, a sea change. This is a bit of a paradigm shift that's taking place over the sixties and seventies as America's endless profits and producing power from World War II are slowing down as the rest of the world is picking up their ability to uh, manufacture on an industrial scale. We're gonna talk about this idea and the history of this idea in the discussion quite a bit. And I think that this conversation really deserves a second glance. I also want to point out here that Treadgold really doubles down on the idea that the people in charge of businesses don't really have a clue about how they really operate or what it takes for these businesses to function, that somehow management is completely divorced from the actual means by which products are manufactured. And part of this is because managers aren't chosen because of their excellence at manufacturing or sales. They're now chosen from the degrees they get from business schools. There's a sense for Treadgold in which the whole enterprise of being a businessman is really a a sham. And Treadgold is trying to make a fortune by exploiting that. And that's kind of what his character is throughout the story. I'm really looking forward to digging in on this when we get to the discussion episode. I have quite a bit to say about management schools as a professional educator, but I also want to comment on the Dick Whittington business here. You know, we know Wolf is writing this story around the same time that he's writing VRT. He's probably already finished VRT, but maybe he's editing it while he's working on this story as well. 
And we've seen already in these batches of stories, some of the connections between short stories that he's working on or novellas that he's working on and the fifth head of Cerberus. But, you know, we had the Puss in Boots reference in VRT. And I just have to wonder what book it was that Wolf had on his desk. Was he reading a book about folk tales about cats or something? And they're all showing up in his stories. <laughs> I'm sure he was. He's got the, the uh, children's treasury of cat folk tales and folk heroes. I'm sure that's probably what he was reading. <laughs> yeah, he was probably reading it to his youngest kid. Right. I mean, I think that's what we're seeing here. So I always just like to see what his method is. I want to learn how to be a better writer, too. And I think this is a pretty important lesson for both of us. Yeah, I think, you know, like we said in the in the introduction to this episode, this story feels really raw in the sense that it's just a lot of stuff that is on Wolf's plate that's coming out into this story because it's so big and it's so dense. Even though he manages it really well, it's kind of a kitchen sink story. And so I think he's just throwing a lot at the wall and seeing what sticks. My gut is this was probably like an 80 or 90 page draft that he had to cut down to fit into a magazine. Well, we might actually see some of that come up in a story that we'll be covering in, in, I don't know, about 10 episodes or so. Well, at this point, we are now at the last bit of story that we're going to have in this episode. The person that Lewis wants to talk to is Phil Hasdorf, who runs a steel company in Pittsburgh. Importantly, though, it's not in Pittsburgh proper, which has been taken over by the Harrys, but is in fact located in the suburbs and therefore is doing just fine. He tells us that the current situation has caused some trouble for employees who lived in the city, but that they're now just letting those employees live in the company complex if they have to to do so. So now they're just living where they work in kind of a, a compound situation, it sounds like. But this call is is really about the upcoming military operation that Wolf has been teasing since the first paragraph. General Verdon needs air support for the operation to succeed, and Hasdorf Steel Company is going to supply the fighter bombers for this operation. But he only has 14, and the real problem is actually that they don't have enough people for ground crews anymore. And unless Lowell can help him out with some more people, he just won't be able to get any more planes off the ground. Lowell and Hasdorf come to an agreement that will net a few more planes. But of course, this conversation has really been about Wolf letting the reader see some more of this speculative world. And what we see is that the American military industrial complex is in full swing here. But now the industrial part is also managing the military part directly, right? It's the Cold War system dialed up to 11. Yeah, it's the first explicit note we get in the text that Lewis is going to try to do some sort of military action. We get teases for it, but this is like the explicit, like we are here at this party to to engage or watch some sort of military action unfold. And it, it's kind of a disgusting conversation because these two men are talking, they're, they're old friends, and they're just talking about trading engineers for air support. Like this is a simple business deal and that engineers are just resources, not that they're People like, well, fine, I'll get you more. I'll uproot these people. This is a battle being run essentially from a spreadsheet is what it feels like. And there's no discussion about the impact the battle will have on a place like Detroit or Pittsburgh or the suburbs of Pittsburgh, where these real battles are being fought and are turning these people, these employees of these companies, basically into serfs in a sense. They have to live where they work. They're being brought inside of the castle walls, so to speak, during a time of war to to be protected. And Wolf is giving us this kind of futuristic medievalism that he loves to show us that really does take root in his imagination from which he creates, you know, the book of the New 
new son. There's a real callousness to the way that they are talking about this. You know, as you said, they're they're doing this from spreadsheets, but this is yeah, the real disregard for actual people. And and one of the details that we get in their conversation is that the reason that the steel company doesn't have enough engineers is that people have walked away from working at this steel company. It's not that there's been some kind of catastrophe and engineers are hard to find. It's that this company is having trouble recruiting engineers because nobody wants to work for them anymore for some reason. And we are going to find out more about that in the next episode. Yeah, absolutely. And just one more note before we go off, Peters here is really revealed to be uh, a coward. He ignores the truth of the conversation between these two men in order to support his boss. And it's this kind of like slippery slope of thinking this, this kind of loyalty to a business before other human beings that I think Wolf is really concerned with in the story. But we have a little bit more to go before we get to talk about all that stuff. So that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. We hope you'll join us on the forums to talk about this section of the story, or you can wait for the discussion episode to talk with us about it. There's a lot going on here, so stay tuned for the next episode. And we hope you'll answer our call to help us produce more episodes of the show by becoming a patron on Patreon. And if you do, you not only get us to the Book of the New Sun more quickly, but as Brandon said at the top of the show, you'll also get access to dozens of, of really awesome bonus episodes. And of course, we're grateful for all the support that we have, and we're really excited about how close we are to reaching that goal. So next time, we'll be recapping the rest of Hour of Trust. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>